0: Uh, it just hit me this morning. I'm Maybe even driving to uh, to church here when I got up or something—I can't remember—that um, I do the math here. I started in the ministry at 19. I'm 54, so that's 35 years. And I don't think I've ever preached a sermon on the Ascension. I mean, I, I honestly I can't think of one. I mean, I'm sure I've commented on the passage as it appears in Scripture, but I don't think I've ever actually thought about you know, what's the meaning of ascension and how does it coherently fit in this story and, and what does it say about our, our lives? And so this is one of the things that I am really enjoying, I don't know about you, about the lectionary. One of the things I'm liking about this pattern of reading the scriptures aloud in public is that every year it tells us the whole story of the gospel. And every three years we will have read all of the scriptures together aloud. And so there's no way to miss these things. <laughs> I mean, in other traditions, you can sort of miss the ascension. Uh, In our tradition, uh, that wouldn't be possible. So it's one of the things I'm really liking. But I like it for another reason. I like it because it does tell us a story. And I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. Story is important because story invites our participation. Where if you tend to have more just sort of a bullet point, doctrinal approach to Christianity, that can easily devolve into a kind of mere beliefism. Where you give mental assent to these points of theology, and I'm not suggesting that those points of theology are unimportant, but I am suggesting something that I think is rather important. Those points of doctrine did not come out of the blue. They weren't dropped like tracks from a divine stork on the beach on the Mediterranean somewhere. Those points of doctrine all emerged from a story. And all we're doing when we highlight story is we're not in any way putting down the, that, that sort of ancient Christian thinking that's gotten codified into bits of theology. We're simply recognizing that they emerge from a story. And that story invites our participation in it. It helps us move from mere knowing to involvement. And so while I'm all in favor, obviously, of Bible facts, you know, I, I really do think it's important that, you, that if I say Genesis, you all think the beginning of the story. I think that's kind of important If I say Revelation, you all think, oh yeah, that points us to the end of the story. If I say Kings, that you have some clue that that, you know, emerges out of the ancient story of Israel. Those things are all very important. But I would just want you to start seeing them something like this. If I say bat, if I say ball, if I say bases, if I say chalk lines, that you know that those things are invitations to play. Those are not implements of the theory of baseball. Those are all implements that allow people to play a game. So if I say Genesis, Revelation, Kings, Judges, Samuel, John the Baptist, Gospels, that we see them like we see those elements of a baseball game that they are inviting us to play. So what does ascension draw our attention to? When we come to this bit of our lectionary called ascension, it draws our attention to life. And if you think of the, the uh, lectionary readings for this morning, that it draws our attention to a certain kind of life. It's life under the kingdom or the kingship of Jesus. And this is very important because what we read this morning in the lectionary readings that draw our attention to Jesus' dominion, which is his kingdom, his power, his authority, his ongoing trying to get something done. When Jesus came into public, it's fascinating, to me at least, that he didn't come preaching in a few years I'm going to die on a cross and after that I'm going to rise again from the dead and after that I'm going to appear to a bunch of my friends and then after that I'm going to ascend into heaven where I will remain seated at the right hand of God interceding for you for all of time as we counted as human beings. That stuff's all true. But it's fascinating to me that when Jesus came he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Mark. And uh, Matthew tells us this most explicitly, but it's implicit in uh, Luke and John as well, that when Jesus came into public, what he was conscious of was the dominion of God. And dominion doesn't mean like, you know, under my thumb. Who's that, Rolling Stones? Don't think Rolling Stones. You know, I got you under my thumb. That's not what dominion means in the Bible. Dominion means something like living in the space, the place, the realm of God. So when you think dominion, don't think God's going to somehow squish me like a bug. Think I'm going to live in the presence of God, in his dominion. I'm going to live in the spaces and places in which what he wants done is done. This is why, by the way, as Christians, we've got to so value justice. And I know that's a hard thing in our culture right now. No one likes the thought of final justice. No one especially likes the thought of hell. No one likes the thought that there could be wheat and tares and sheep and goats and ultimate destinies and all that. I know that's very hard in our culture. But I just want to say to you, you can't pick and choose. You can't have it both ways. Either that's true and no one will ever be raped again. See, when God comes and brings his final justice, no one will ever steal from you again. Your 10-year-old will never come home again bawling their eyes out that someone stole their bicycle. It won't happen. When God's dominion finally comes and it all happens, yes, bad people can no longer be bad and that's going to be hell for them. But you, we can't have it both ways. We can't pick and choose. God's final justice is coming. And things like ascension alert us to that fact, that Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father working that kind of stuff out. We didn't read this passage this morning, but I, I just want to draw it to your attention. The prophet Daniel sees this day coming. He sees sort of the final end of things coming, That the resurrection and ascension, especially Mark, and Daniel sees it as a vision. He sees this, this one like a human being coming up from the clouds of earth into heaven. And, and as Jesus goes into heaven, Daniel sees him as being given dominion and glory and kingship. That all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Well, again, we have to ask ourselves, does serve him sound to you like the rolling stones? I've got you under my thumb. Or does serving him make you think, well, that makes me the most human I could ever possibly be. That deriving my life from the life of God, from this kingdom that Jesus said He came to bring, that as I begin to derive my life from that and live my life under the rule and reign of God, I actually become humanity as God intended. It's not under His thumb, it is the most fully human. The most perfect blossom human rose that you could ever possibly be. When Jesus came inviting us to live in and under and with and through the dominion or the kingdom of God, it was not an invitation to become a nobody, a nothing, a doormat. It was an, it's the greatest invitation ever given to humanity. It's the invitation to become wholly human in the image of God. And so Daniel sees Uh, As he pictures ahead of time the ascension of Jesus and sees that this dominion will be an everlasting dominion. It's not going to pass away. His kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. So sorry, thieves. At the end of the day, you lose. Sorry, people who sexually bully people. At the end of the day, you lose. Sorry, people who lie and manipulate and cheat and steal. At the end of the day, you lose. You just have to ask yourself, can you get comfortable with that? I mean, but to me, when I see, I sort of, I guess I see it like C.S. Lewis. If, if, if somebody is in, it, determined and intentioned in their heart to not live under the dominion of God, God just simply said, okay, I've made a place for you in the cosmos. It's called hell. And it's for all of you who want absolutely nothing to do with me. Because think about it. If you found yourself in heaven and you really didn't like God and you really didn't like his dominion, wouldn't that be for you a horrible hell? I mean, come and think about it. I'm, I'm not being sarcastic. It would be the most horrible hell. If you found yourself in a place where what God wants done is done 24-7 and you found yourself counter that really in your heart of hearts, you were counter to that. So God has made a a space, a place for people who actually want nothing to do with him. But what what the readings today alert us to, and I think help ask a question for me at least, and that is how do we find, live in, and pass on to others this good life of the kingdom and the kingship of Jesus that the ascension alerts us to? Well, Matthew tells us, He says, here's what you do, I'm sorry, Samuel tells us, here's what you do, you serve the Lord with all your heart. That's the first thing about finding a life in and deriving our life from the kingdom of God. He says, you serve the Lord with your whole heart. Well, serve is obviously an action word. It's not a word that could ever stop at belief. It it, it calls together something for us to do. And then he says, serve the Lord with all your heart. And this is very important because it gets to the whole notion of not serving God in fragmented ways or giving him a portion of our life, but alignment. What it really brings to to mind is integrity. Now, I'm not talking about perfection here when we talk about loving God with your whole heart. I'm not saying we can never make mistakes and all that. I'm talking about basic integrity, almost the way you would think of integrity in an engineering sense. Like if you were to ask, does this bridge have integrity? Well, you don't mean that. it it doesn't vibrate at all when a 20-ton truck goes over it. You just mean, yeah, it has basic integrity. It, it It can withstand, it can do what it was designed to do. And so when Samuel says to serve the Lord with your whole heart, that's what he has in mind, that you've made a basic sort of fundamental choice that brings an integrity, an alignment, a wholeness to your life. And so when he says serve the Lord with all your heart, by heart he means... The real and whole you. Uh, whenever, especially in the Old Testament, they use the word heart, it has to do with kind of the, the basic sort of um, processing system that's going on inside of you. Samuel says you bring that to the Lord. Well, I like the way my friend Dallas would, um, describes this process of serving the Lord with your whole heart, which to me is really the process of spiritual formation. Dallas says this, the end ideal... Of spiritual transformation is when all the essential parts of our human self are effectively organized around God and then they are restored and sustained by him so we take all the essential parts of our life that's what Samuel's talking about with your whole heart and spiritual transformation means that they're then increasingly being organized around God as all these parts of our lives gets restored and sustained by him. So spiritual transformation Dallas says is the process leading to that ideal end and its result is love of God with all the heart soul and mind and strength and its neighbor as oneself. Now this to me is a very important thought because the truth of it is when all of us walked in that door this morning and and came in here and sat down we all came in with a certain temperament and a certain personality type and a certain set of gifts. I mean that's just true. And that means that for some of you, you're sort of temperamentally wired towards spiritual formation. You're kind of temperamentally wired towards quietness and thoughtfulness and and appropriate self-examination. You're just, that kind of comes easy to you. For others of you, no, I can't do that. My ADD kicks in and I can't handle that. I really like doing social justice. And I really like being out and feeding the poor and doing that kind of stuff. And that temperamentally is more easy for me. Others of you are, well, yeah, I guess I could see that, but man, what I really love is evangelism. And I really like, you know, sharing my faith with others, and you know, I don't have time to worry about all that other stuff, you know, I need to do this stuff. And that's all fine, I mean, there's nothing we can do about that, That's, that's just real, that's what it is. But here's what I want you to see. That, from the point of view of the Bible, those are all false dichotomies. If spiritual transformation leads to one's heart, soul, mind and strength being restored restored and sustained by God, that will light a light on a hill that cannot be hid. If you fear that if I pursue spiritual transformation in the way of Jesus, that I will somehow become the kind of person who's divorced from social justice and divorced from evangelism, you fundamentally misunderstand spiritual formation. Spiritual formation makes you into the kind of person that Jesus said is precisely salt. That's what Jesus had in mind when he said, come follow me, God, I'm going to make you into the salt of the earth. What he meant was, I'm going to make you the kind of person who helps transform people, which includes sinners. And it means transforming people who live on the street and have nothing or the mentally broken or Whatever. When Jesus said, if you come follow me and become the kind of person I'm asking you to be, it most naturally results in the kind of life that exists for the sake of others. If you actually become light, Jesus said, you cannot hide it. Trust me, if you start being transformed and your life starts becoming different and more Christ-like, that is not going to harm your ability to do justice or evangelism. These things go together, and I think as people and as a congregation... We have to see the wholeness that's there, that uh, true spiritual transformation can never lead to navel-gazing. Well, then we get to uh, this this second thought from Samuel that I like. We think, well, okay, you know, I've tried to put myself under the dominion of God. I've tried to really try to get my life in the kingdom of God, but I've sinned, and I continue to sin, and I don't know what to do about it. And Samuel gives us the word when he says, okay, I get it, I know that's true, but don't turn your back on God. Do you see that in your passage there if you've still got it open to Samuel? Don't turn your back on God. Worship him and serve him heart and soul. I like the way the message has it. Don't chase after ghost gods. There's nothing to them. They can't help you. So we we begin, we put ourselves in this process, but we see that we sin. Samuel says, but whatever you do, don't let that make you turn your back on God. Worship him with heart and soul. Don't chase other things. And then, of course, the psalmist tells us why. Because God's king. He reigns. He does have dominion and authority. And so when you see this stuff happening, it just asks us to ask the question, do you accept this? Do you submit to this? Do you surrender this? As I was Typing that yesterday, again, it just made me think. Think of those words, submit, accept, surrender. Again, those are just not easy words today. And here's why. It, It has to do with fundamental orientation. We think if I submit, accept, and surrender, then something essential about me dies. And I become kind of less than myself, less than human. And so you can see that that comes out of an orientation towards ourselves. But if one takes the basic fact of ascension, and one takes what Daniel sees, that as Jesus ascends into heaven and God gives him all power and authority and dominion, and we see that as we let go of things about ourselves that might scare us, what's actually happening is again, we're not becoming less or nothing or a doormat, we're actually finding life as God intended it. And that's the trick. This is why the psalmists constantly say, um, this is a very human thing, and I've got to find my way back to finding my life in Christ. This is why Christians forever, though it's a, a bit of a mystery this passage in Philippians, but Christians forever have marveled from this thought of Paul's when he said, Jesus, the incarnate Christ, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped but let go of it and trusted himself into the life of his father. That's the Jesus you love and serve. That's the Jesus you were just singing about. The one who exactly let go of sort of defining himself by himself. Do you see the shift in basic orientation? He let go of defining himself by who he was to define himself by his father. So the story in Acts to me just shows that, that like this is true, though we might be blind to it. That what Daniel saw, the dominion that Jesus has and the dominion that God has, this ultimate reality that's always running in the background, it's always there. And this is maybe one of my favorite two sentences in the Bible, and has been since I was a very, very young person, is picturing those guys in prison chained to this wall with urine and feces and moldy food and everything all around them and they're singing to god i just have a feeling i might have been doing something else but they're singing and worshiping well why because they don't smell the urine why they don't feel the cold steel around their wrists and ankles are they stupid are, are they are they stupid people Do you see what i'm saying are 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 they robots No, they're just in touch with this other reality. This is real. It stinks down here. It's dark. I'm afraid. These jailers like to torment us. I've heard that just last week they killed some prisoners like us. I'm fearful. I smell the smell. I feel the binding. But they're aware of this other reality. And so they're singing, and I'll be darned if the other reality doesn't break out in this earthquake. And you've heard me say before, and you're going to probably hear me say a 100 times over the next decade, that you have to find the goodness of God in your actual life. There is no you apart from the life that you're now experiencing, that is you. Good boss, bad boss. Good kids, bad kids. Good spouse, bad spouse. This is your life, and it's in that life that we must find the goodness of God. And that's exactly what Paul and his buddies are doing they're realizing that while all this is true, it's also true that there's another reality that I'm in touch with. Now, this is beautiful, because what do you see here, if not what would you would consider the height of spiritual formation, right? I mean, am I the only one that sees that as amazing spirituality? Experiencing all that, and they're worshiping God. And what happens next? The jailers see the life of God. And they ask, how can I be saved? And I just want you to know that all over our country today and all over the Western world are millions of seekers for whom their first question is not, did Jesus rise from the dead? Their first question is not, can you give me an adequate theory of the atonement? Because if you can, I'll believe. Their first question is not, can you give me an adequate uh, theory of the inspiration of Scripture? Because if you can, I'll, I'll consider that maybe this is plausible. No, what hundreds of millions of people in the Western world are looking for is, is there a life? Are you guys connected to anything different? And if you are, and if you're finding the goodness of God in your very difficult lives, and you're finding the goodness of God when you lost your house... Okay, maybe you're not feeling cold chains around your hands and smelling the stink of urine, but you lost your home, you got laid off from your job, your grandmother's dying, whatever. Are you finding the goodness of God in there? And if you are, and if your life is coming together around this notion of serving God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, and you're having that kind of spiritual transformation happening in your life, it is the number one testimony today of the goodness of God. It is the number one way that seekers today find a plausibility to, to maybe start seeking the faith. And so it's actually a very important thing that leads to many people saying, Sir, what do I have to do to be saved to really live? Well, let me just close by saying this. I, I know this is one of those things that's easy to say, hard to do. Easy for me to say, hard for all of us to do. Jesus knows this. And this is why he prays for his followers. And, and I just want to highlight the one thing he prays is he says, Father, I want them to be right where I am. Well, where was he? I think, you know, as he is, you know, facing his own death and crucifixion, what he's seeing is I'm safe, I'm secure, I'm protected, I'm confident in this reality of the reign of God. I'm confident that you really do have dominion. And if this cup is not going to pass from me, he's realizing it is going to lead to resurrection and ascension and to your dominion coming out over all the earth. But again, we have this sort of different reality where we, we sometimes get aware that, well, things, Todd, don't always work out. I do have to provide for myself. I can't have confidence in God. I've got to make it happen. You know, we're aware of this other reality that's just right in our face. Well, I saw a story not long ago. It's it's actually not a very pleasant story, especially if you love animals. But uh, one of the sort of more brutal ways that animal trappers catch various kinds of monkeys in Africa is they make a trap by creating a gourd in a tree. A gourd is just kind of a hollow opening. And then they put a piece of fruit in it, like an apple or an orange or something. And the monkey goes up to the tree, and he puts his hand in the tree to get the piece of fruit. But once he does that... His hand is too big and he can't pull it out of the hole. And there's just something innate in monkeys that they will not let go of the fruit. Even when a trapper is right behind them with a club to beat them to death or whatever, there's just something in them. They won't let go of it. This trap this trap has never failed. It doesn't take nets, you no, know, nothing. It, they, they, will, they will not let go of the fruit. And most of the time, trappers just come up and club them or something. And so it's not a very pleasant story, but I just thought... You know, we face the same basic sort of choice. Hang on to the only reality that you instinctually know, the reality that I'm fundamental to the cosmos and I gotta make life work. Or you kind of go against everything that's in your sort of spiritual DNA and you let go. You let go not because you're stupid. You don't let go because you're a religious nut. You let go because, like Daniel, you see that there is a different dominion here. You let go, but you, you let go and sing like Paul and his buddies, because you know though this is where I am, there is another reality. And once you do, as Ezekiel said, remember Ezekiel said, "Why do you choose death when life's available to you?" And as soon as we let go of that, we then, of course, find the life of God. It begins to reorient us, mind, soul, body, spirit. As it does so, we get put into this realm that Jesus and Samuel and David and all these people saw. And oddly enough, not oddly, amazingly enough, as that happens, A, you become light and you will start having people say to you, ma'am. What must, I be, what must I do to have your reality? And B, that will result in such natural goodness that all the social justice that we will ever have to do will become instinctual to us. We will not have to put it on like Saul's armor. It will be as native as we can possibly be. Just simply being alert to. There's a big story going on here. And it's near the end. Jesus did die. He was buried. He did raise from the dead. And he did appear to a bunch of his friends. And he has ascended into heaven. And his ascension into heaven, constantly looking out for you, is the peace, safety, security, and provision in which you can find the confidence to let go of whatever it is you're holding on to and harming your life. That's the invitation of Jesus' dominion, not to be under his thumb but to be free. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.